and welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and as ever, I've gathered a cast of HSJ journalists to explain and debate the biggest health policy stories this week. I'm joined by Bureau Chiefs, James Illman and Ben Clover, and fellow senior correspondent Sharon Brennan. Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for joining. This week, we are digging into the long-awaited Phase 3 planning guidance for the NHS, which has set out the crucial next steps for the health service in this tentative post-COVID world. So coming to James first, James, you tackled the guidance in your newly rebranded Recovery Watch column um, this week called the Return of the Detox. Um, could you tell listeners how um, this came out of the new guidance? I think that was published um, last Friday. Yeah, sure. So the um, the phase three letter, which is calling for um, non-COVID health services to return to near normal performance before winter. So near normal uh, appears to be the new normal. Um, first of all, yeah, if we just take a step back and look at the planning guidance in, in, in the round, it's sort of um, we get these uh, letters um, each winter setting out the kind of marching orders for the system and there's now a very kind of well rehearsed dance uh, if you pick any planning guidance from the last five years or so you'll see a similar sequence of events whereby the centre sets a variety of super stretching targets um, and trajectories normally designed to bring the system back to parity um, local leaders then say these are a bit over ambitious, bit unrealistic, and um, low. The targets are duly not delivered. Um, come the end of the year, um, and uh, just an example of this would be the eighteen nineteen guidance, which was the one I, I picked on for my um, uh, column, which uh, said that the NHS would be expected to hit the four hour target within the course of twenty nineteen. Um, by December twenty nineteen, every single trust had missed a target and performance had plummeted to new lows and that target uh, hasn't been hit since um, and uh, that 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 goes back to July 2015 uh, and now it looks like it might be scrapped but that's a issue for another podcast altogether so it wasn't really a great surprise when um, these kind of super stretching targets got announced and just to give you a flavour of some of them it says trusts must deliver at least 80% of last year's activity for both overnight electives and for outpatient day case procedures by September rising to 90% in October. Um, systems must hit at least 90% of last year's levels of MRI, CT and endoscopy procedures by September with an ambition to reach 100% by October. Um, trust must hit 100% of their last year's activity for first outpatient attendances and follow-ups uh, from September. It, it really wasn't a surprise when both NHS Confederation and NHS providers came out and said, hey, um, these are, are, are pretty ambitious and um, you might just want to um, uh, rein in your expectations of, of what the system can deliver. Um, I, I mean, the, the premise of the guidance is sound enough. The idea was to use this kind of window of opportunity uh, between now and winter to try and get the system a bit back on track. But um, it's just the, um, uh, the level of recovery which um, local leaders and central leaders disagree on is achievable within that time. Um, I just want to yeah, flag up a few uh, sort of three things that, that, that kind of have really worried people. First of all, on the money, 
um, another thing that the um, the letter confirmed was that the NHS, um, well, NHS England sees its funding settlement for the back half of 2021 as unfinished business with the Treasury. Um, so negotiations on that deal are still going on and they're pretty fraught and pretty tetchy. We're not expecting them to be delivered uh, for another, we're not expecting a deal to be announced for another month. So it's quite hard to really assess um, the um, uh, the ask without knowing what the funding um, envelope is for that ask. Um, another thing uh, that's cropped up uh, and has really made people very nervous, uh, and this was why we called the column the return of detox, uh, the return of delayed transfers of, of, of care, is that the government has decided to reintroduce continuing healthcare assessments from September 2020. Um, so yeah, next month. Um, so those assessments, which are incredibly bureaucratic and lead to a lot of wranglings between councils and the NHS over who should pay for care, have been suspended since March, um, which has really helped the system. Um, you'll remember originally they had to free up, free up around 30,000 beds and needed to discharge a lot of people very quickly, and it really helped that discharge process. And delayed discharges were a huge problem pre-COVID, and they're now um, yeah, this is this is one of the things that's been going well of late. So um, to bring back what is broadly seen as quite an absurd system um, hasn't gone down well. And I believe uh, Sharon, are you you're you're working on a um, a follow up for that um, for tomorrow? Do you wanna do you wanna just um, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we have a piece coming out tomorrow uh, about continuing healthcare. I mean, James is right. If CCG leaders had the, the choice, they would not have continuing healthcare exist again. Um, I think they've really welcomed the fact that it has been gone for four months uh, because it is seen as a massive barrier to discharge and also takes up a huge amount of administrative time. I was talking to one ICS leader about a month or so ago who was desperate for it not to return. And he said of his 300 CCG staff, 100 are dedicated to uh, doing CHC assessments. So for those listening, um, NHS Continuing Healthcare, if you don't know, is specifically aimed at those people who, have, who uh, those adults um, who have a, who are assessed as having a primary health need. And if you have a primary health need within the community, then you're entitled to NHS um, funded care, which means all of your care is paid for. So you can see why um, uh, why it's such a big issue, because if, if you aren't entitled to NHS uh, CHC, then basically you have to pay for your care through the social care system. So it does make patients kind of very unwilling to um, to leave the system if they feel they're eligible, um, partly because they don't want to miss out on an opportunity and be pushed into social care and be forced to pay that while they're waiting for an assessment. Um, and also it's just such a bureaucratic process, um, getting the system in place. Uh, we've seen vast amounts of postcode lottery in terms of who is and isn't eligible, depending on which area you're assessed, um, and very different ways of assessing people across the country, even though that officially should not happen. So what we found is that during the period in which it was suspended, the 19th of March to what will be the 31st of August, in that period last year, there were 79,000 referrals to the CHC system and 71,000 assessments. So that is potentially the backlog that CCGs could be dealing with. Um, that's vastly more than NHS England suggested in M March when it suspended it. At that time, it said it expected approximately 5,000 assessments per month. 
to happen and therefore there'd be a backlog of about 30,000. And our estimate based on last year and also going back to 2018, 19, when it was even higher, is that that is a way, a massive underestimate. So um, it massively impacts uh, detox, partly because by bringing it back in, um, it, the barriers come right back up again, the wrangles between social care and NHS start again, and they're not easily resolved. Um, but also in terms of the wider system, you're expecting CCGs to find a way to plough through vast amounts, you know, as I said, up to 80,000 refer referrals in a very short period of time. Um, and they really have, frankly, better things to be doing with their time at the moment. I mean, obviously, getting through these waiting lists is, is a very tricky issue for commissioners and trusts. How do you do that? How do you set up a system that's fair to everyone? Um, and on top of that, which, you know, is another topic, a story of another podcast, but they are expected to merge by the 1st of April. So the paperwork for that has to be in by the 30th of September. So you've got CCGs having to do one massive bureaucratic issue of merging, which is essential for NHS England to go ahead with its integrated care system plans, while on top of that, trying to get through a very, very complicated uh, landscape of CHC. And, you know, just briefly, so I don't uh, take up the whole process all about CHC because this podcast could do that. Um, you know, the emergency funding, was, was, which was introduced to, to pay for everyone's care, um, wasn't actually eligible for everyone. So if you were in hospital, and you were discharged into a new care package, you got emergency funding. If you're in hospital and you were discharged into the same care package, you didn't get emergency funding, so you continue to pay for it. So at that point, if people felt their needs had got so much higher that they were eligible for CHC, they didn't get that assessment and they've been paying for their care since then. And if you were at home and you'd already made a request to be assessed for CHC and then the lockdown hit March the 19th and they stopped doing them, that's people waiting four months now to find out if they're eligible and also paying for their care that entire time. So trying to work out when best to assess people's needs and when best to say that they're going to backdate these payments is going to be an absolute nightmare. And we've got one person saying this could drag on for years. So systems expecting, systems <laughs> like expecting this massive feat of integrated working just shortly after, well, in, in the shadow of a massive, you're all being merged and lots of you are going to lose your jobs. And after the acute sector and the care sector have just had a kind of testing three months. Absolutely, uh, yeah. How discharges work. And I think sure, one of the interesting things about the barriers that James talked about, yeah, it's partly down to finances, but if you actually go and talk to people on the ground in March and April, something really incredible happened and people stopped saying, oh, I do discharges for local, local authorities, I do discharges for primary care, I do discharges for acute trust. They all came together and just did discharges. Uh, one common um, purpose and they all worked together and stopped saying who they work for and who their employers are and just focused on getting people out and into appropriate care in the system. As soon as you bring CHC back in, you're going to get the social care versus the NHS and that integration, which has been genuinely happened and has been absolutely vital to speed up discharges, is likely to go. And do you think kind of like that that unity that we had and the, the bits at risk again, do you think that's going to have any bearing on on sort of the long term social care issue about who pays how much and where it's organised from? Well, um, there is meant to be a social care winter plan coming up um, and also your so Equal Eyes may have noticed in the phase three document there is going to be a phase three document by DHSC for social care although I'm not really sure they've got a phase one or a phase two but um, <laughs> they're going to get phase three and you know what is going to be in that is really interesting because CHC is not the thing you would have put in that plan to get through winter it's just um, I mean, I can see why NHS is doing it, because as James has been saying, the finances, you know, there's now a clear, clear focus to get grip back on the finances again, but it's not going to help 
social care in the long run. Um, I think what is interesting is that there is a clear indication in phase three that um, the first six weeks of care will now be paid for um, when you are discharged from the NHS. And I can imagine that staying and being quite a permanent feature for the next few years because it gives you six weeks worth of breathing space where people aren't going to be paying for their care. And then it, it means you can sort out all the wrangles over who should be paying, what care home they should be going into and whether it allowed NHS CHC and gives them six weeks to do it. Um, without it having to take place within a hospital. So that, that in itself should help. And obviously after six weeks of care, you may not need any more care. So that also takes some of the pressure on social care. So I can imagine something like that actually staying for, for, you know, for the foreseeable future because it will, that will genuinely help to speed up discharges. Mm, mm. No, thank you, Sharon. I've just been struck by how it seems to kind of be at odds with um, some of the comments that Matt Hancock was making, making in a speech last week around um, breaking down barriers between kind of social care and um, the NHS. James, you just raised your hand. What, what yeah. do you want to add? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was just going to say, I mean, and and this issue that Sharon raises about getting a grip back on the finances, that it really runs like a thread through the phase three letter um, because something else that um, uh, it's costing quite a lot of money um, has, has been the deal which was struck back in March to, um, uh, I mean, almost nationalise the private sector, um, the, the um, um, health private sector in this country. It's an unprecedented deal. There's about 8,000 beds in the private sector. Um, and this, this deal was struck, which sort of industry sources estimate cost around 100 to 125 million a week, quite a lot of money. Um, and um, uh, that's been rolling on and people have been thinking, well, um, that deal is coming to an end this month. Um, it needs um, renewing and something needs to be put in place. And, and lo, the phase three letter did say that um, a modified deal um, had been struck. Um, but it didn't really provide uh, too much information beyond um, that, yeah, a modified national contract with um, independent uh, providers would be in place into the autumn, uh, at which point it will be replaced with a new framework deal for a return to local commissioners of private procedures running to March next year. Um, and this, this, this was interesting because uh, a lot of the, um, the Royal Colleges have been calling for this deal to keep going because keeping the electives on track, um, use of the private sector is essential. Um, and, um, but it turns out it, it sort of soon after publishing the piece, um, private sector sources were contacting me and saying, oh, we're not aware of any deal being done. We, we, we don't know if there is a deal. And, and it seems that there may well not be a deal. Um, completed preemptive then <laughs> yeah it sounded yeah um preemptive is is one way of putting it uh, and um um but it, it, it sort of uh, then sort of people in london were raising issues uh that their deal runs out or is set to be terminated next month uh, and you've got twenty thousand people circa um, who have waited for procedures, operations, electives uh, for over a year in the yeah. capital. And that's something that really needs to, you know, getting a grip on the finances, yes, but getting a grip on electives is like the prime concern of the NHS at the moment. So, um, so it seems, 
yeah, a lot of questions there. I'm, I've got a lot of calls out to people to try and find out what's going on on that and hopefully should have news for you uh, over the next few days. But yeah, I, I mean, Ben, you, you, you cover London um, and you've, you've covered the private sector as well. So yeah, you, what's going on in London? Well, there's, there's... <laughs> it's, it's been really interesting, uh, those negotiations, because most of the private sector of the of a hospital private sector in Britain, it's about five billion quid's worth of it a year, is in London, um, and it's and London's where the so and lots of the big NHS trusts kind of compete um, with the big private companies, uh, the, the things like your hospital corporations of America to do the international private patients. So, just just by way of an example, just the the NHS owned private patient units market in London is worth about 250 million quid a year right and what we've seen when the NHS has sort of block booked all this stuff um, is just by way of an example the Portland hospital where like the crowned heads of the of the Gulf states um, have their elective cesareans was also housing the elective cesareans for north central london so if you needed an elective cesarean in this period from and you lived in haringey um you'd be you'd be treated like in the portland kind of you know quite so it's so these are expensive facilities on the other hand um there's there's not a lot of people wanting to fly into one of the pandemic hotspots to have their private healthcare anyway so the nhs shouldn't have been in too bad of a negotiating position in terms of getting a price this i can't help but wonder if a lot of the deal making uh, is sort of motivated partly around not having it land not having the bill land in any one easy silo um because the nhs management has always been very cherry of having any kind of um total going you have spent this much with the private sector this year because this is not that they've never done this before kind of commissioners would encourage it um, sometimes trusts could do it. Um, sometimes it'd be like a centrally organised drive to try and blast through bits of the waiting list. So it's not unprecedented, but I think, I think yeah. But, I mean, the figure that was banded earlier this year was about five billion to to extend to the end of the financial year. Um, kind of in practice. So so NHS in, like NHS London, like I've said before, was kind of quite proud that it managed to do more elective, more cancer surgery. Um, like this April and it did last April that's it just simply cannot do that you know and it simply it, without the independent sector it, like, it simply couldn't burn through the rest of the like priority two patients and the priority three patients um, without that money like without that money it can't do the endoscopy um, backlog which is a huge and really really serious problem like and it's important like it's important to remember with all performance stuff in the NHS, particularly RTT and cancer, um, is that, you know, we, we couldn't just say, oh, then COVID came and we needed to take a load of drastic steps. Like the system was already running really hot, really slow, and the backlog was growing the whole time. Um, and there were like the, the definitions of patient harm, which were never very well organized in the NHS. Um, and never very convincing. So, for example, if you were waiting in quite bad discomfort for quite a long time for your elected procedure, that just got put down as a as a minor harm. And like the system doesn't take that very seriously. The system's more interested, as you might expect, kind of a medically driven system is more interested in kind of things where someone's condition has deteriorated 
really and their and their cancer is a lot worse than it would have been now we've not got we're not going to see that just yet because the the phe data on when people showed like the roots of diagnosis data and what what uh, level of cancer they showed with um won't come through for a couple of years but um there is harm review and there is prioritization processes going on and and there's some really urgent ones like we we're going to expect to see a really i mean the, the guidance said we've got to focus on people who waited more than 104 days for cancer for their cancer treatment you know kind of like which is pretty wild really considering you know kind of the target is for 85 percent of people to be to be seen within 62 days and we are well south of that already and it's going to get even worse when primary care starts referring people back in i mean part of the happy tidings for the center and i guess the government from this is that like the performance measures on elective you can't actually measure where they're going to have hit them or not um in the way they're constructed they're going to like oh we're going to try and get um back to near pre-pandemic levels on this proportion of outpatients and mri scans like well that data we can't actually get at that so we're just gonna have to take your word for it on how how you did um and also, as James pointed out earlier, uh, they always miss <laughs> with this stuff. Like almost the point of these documents seems to be to try and fool the treasury uh, into thinking that into thinking that the money will a be traceable and b that they'll get something definite in return. Like they they never do. I mean, just just quickly when I when I was going around people, hospital uh, leaders. Um, in response to the P3 data, like the word mad came up about just how hittable they were going to be. People mentioned that, um, you know, for all of the for all of the other constraints operating, so like, oh, we're going to try and run. Oh, by the way, we should never say that a site is like COVID free, that we're going to have a COVID free place for cancer surgery. When you speak to the people running oncology services, they're kind of like, or, or surgical services, they go like COVID light. Ferris, Actually, Ben, there. I've now heard COVID light has changed to COVID protected. Oh, right. OK. In the hope that's... that they say they're trying, but, you know. More optimistic. Yeah. Well, I think it's less optimistic. I think it's a very interesting use of word because like, we've tried to protect you, but, you know, we can't guarantee it. But we'll see. <laughs> well, like the legal aspects of this have yet to be fully explored um, in terms of what, what the the CNST, the clinical negligence, negligence arrangements are. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, yeah. Sorry, the main constraint isn't even the the green and blue pathways. I.e., you should try and keep people as separated as possible, um, or kind of all of the all of how less efficient your processes are because of all the donning and doffing of, of kit you're going to need to do. And by the way, it's got to be like the best century for the verb doffing since like the 15th century. <laughs> at the moment yeah doffing is is back but it's it's no those aren't the main problems the main problem is just workforce as usual and that was mm. the workforce was the problem before particularly anesthetists like record numbers of whom say they're the most burnt out because they're having to do um, all this ec extra work and kind of and also managers are trying to get their staff to use up some of their annual leave before winter hits at the moment so go, go, go on go on go on a holiday oh actually we're going to need you for a massive waiting list initiative to kind of try and clear up the massive elective backlog sorry not elective backlog specific well the elective backlog and the um the endoscopy backlog which mm. you know which will see people like there will be there will be people who die because of what didn't happen over the past couple of months or kind of or by how quickly the nhs can get 
can can catch up with stuff like it really is kind of uh you know pe people dying of bowel cancer like kings in south london had such a bad performance on that that they had to admit like three three deaths and that was well, well before so that was last year anyway um i i thought it was interesting in the document that normally when when the nhs puts out something like this its priorities are very clearly in order a and e cancer electives because electives you know the harm review process isn't very clear people seem to still have the sort of 90s mindset that anything less than a, a two-year wait really isn't that bad so it was really kind of interesting to see to see that cancer was now the first thing they mentioned then electives then primary and community care which is like it's wild that the a and e's dropped off um mm. quite yeah. so thoroughly um I mean, just to go back to the, the harm review for a second, like it was on a uh, survey by the Royal College of Physicians on the front of the mail the other day saying 60% of their respondents think people have come to some level of harm as a, as a result of, of those delays. Yeah. And, like, and that's the physicians. That's not like, you know, that's that's largely leaving cancer alone. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be a huge bit of work. I would say as well, though, come winter, I think A&E will go rocketing back up yes. that uh, pyramid. Um, but yeah, electives and cancer, certainly. Um, but, but there'll be no way of measuring it compared to previous years by that point. Uh, no, not if um, uh, certain plans are implemented, um, although they still don't have a government sign off. So there is still um, some degree of uncertainty over how we will measure A&E over winter um, with the clinical standards review uh, to be published imminently, we understand. Mm. Thank you both. Um, we have a few minutes left, actually. I just wanted to, before we round up the podcast this week, um, to circle back um, to something James was talking about around finance and just come to Sharon um, around a story that you have published this week with our, our, current, our colleague Lawrence Dunhill um, around the Seacole Centre. It's a really interesting um, piece and just would you be able to kind of just give a uh, quick flavour of it? Absolutely I think actually a lot of the issues that piece raised uh, uh, ties into some of the issues Ben and, and James have said but just to give the listeners a, a quick overview um, a, to much fanfare in May, a seacoal centre was opened in Surrey uh, in the old Headley Court, um, which used to be used for a rehab of soldiers. And the idea that it was, it was called it the first rehabilitation hospital for those people who'd suffered from COVID. Um, and it was meant for people who no longer needed acute services, but still needed rehab, or those people who were at home coping with COVID alone, who also needed more support. Um, and it was uh, trailed as the first of many and it's going to treat thousands of patients. And since then, it's all got a bit quiet on seacoals. And, and, you know, we've been digging around and found out, actually, they've now decided that there's not going to be any more of those. There's just going to be the one in Surrey. Um, and we were told by a very senior source in, within the NHS that it's because, you know, they put a bid in uh, for funding and it was rejected. Um, and on top of that, Lawrence uh, had previously reported that the Northwest, in the Northwest, three ICSs were also told by NHS England to start putting plans together for, like, COVID recovery beds of up to 900 new beds uh, for people in a very similar scenario. And having done that work, they've now also been told there's no money to fund those buildings. Um, we were told officially by NHS England that 
rehab is still going to carry on and it's going to be part of the 500 million pounds that's being put towards discharge. Um, so startly, I think that that shows you that there is still that wrangle going on that James talked about between what the NHS wants and what it's getting from the Treasury. Um, and I think, as James pointed out, that hasn't resolved itself because this was an issue that clearly NHS England was looking into setting up some kind of more local rehab services. Um, and it's now been kiboshed. Um, I think it also goes to speak to some of the speed of, of kind of setting this stuff up. So actually the Seacoal Centre in itself is a very strange idea. The idea of having one single uh, big centre in you know, various locations that aren't local to that person's home is a very weird way of doing rehab anyway. So unsurprisingly, we found from a, an awful lot of rehab experts that no one was consulted on it within the NHS um, on what would and wouldn't work. And it was just kind of put together. Um, so I think there, there is an issue there about um, how you fund services like this and you know going back to what Ben was saying um, and equality of access cancer's up there um, obviously but some of the stuff around rehab it sounds like oh they're nice to have but actually what it's doing is helping people who have, have had their care deteriorate while they're waiting for electives so it's not just about COVID recovery um, it's also about those people who've had long-term conditions that haven't accessed the physio they need um, while shielding so they've deteriorated things such as Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, MND, um, people who have worsening hip and knee pain and haven't been able to get their electives, so they've deteriorated. So the, the, the overall ask on rehab is much higher. And the, the, the view that NHS England said that well, this can be done through discharge completely doesn't understand the complex picture out there of what the needs are. Um, so it is, it's an interesting one. It kind of talks to James's point about the wrangle around money. And it mm. talks to Ben's point about, you know, this isn't just, oh, the electives are going to be, you know, burgeoning and, and people aren't going to get the treatment they need. It's like, how do you help those people while they're waiting? And there doesn't seem to be a very clear plan around that. Um, and maybe just to end on, there still seems to be no plan at all for those people who suffered with COVID at home and actually were seriously sick, but didn't feel they were so sick that they were allowed to go to hospital or they didn't need ventilation or oxygen. Um, and they're still struggling at home now. You know, there's a lot of talk in the papers recently about the long tail of COVID um, and they've had no access to help. So a lot of those people are fatigued, they're struggling to walk, they're still breathless. That's primarily what rehab does. Primarily rehab kind of helps with that stuff. Um, so it's like, how do you get access to those? And, you know, just to quickly end, because it's Matt Hancock's favourite topic, um, the view at the moment is that there's a, your, your COVID recovery. And as of September, people will be helped to recover from their COVID using an online app or website with guided help from a therapy uh, therapist. Uh, most of the colleges that, you know, look after uh, these kind of people, so speech and language, uh, physiotherapy and occupational therapy have said the thing that's obvious, you know, it's just going to drive health inequalities. Not everyone can access websites. Um, and not everyone uh, and a website's appropriate for for um, rehabilitation. You know, people who are, you know, maybe quite fit and healthy normally, used to going out, did a bit of exercise, happy to get back to work and got support around them will likely thrive from an online programme. Those people with complex needs, learning disabilities, no access to the Internet or just, you know, don't have the drive to do it because they're so um, kind of lonely or, or, or don't have that family support are not going to be helped from that. So. Uh, just I suppose ends the podcast you know there is a lot of unanswered questions in lots of areas about what's going to happen uh, leading into winter. Mm, and it, yeah absolutely and it sounds like this phase three letter has perhaps presented more more new questions and answers. Um, thank you all so much. Um,
we've come to the end of the podcast this week just to remind listeners um you can find us on the hsj.co.uk website um where um, the podcast is available every week and across all main podcast channels so please do subscribe and share thanks very much for listening we'll see you next week